I'm, you know, when, it, when you see someone that you love or even someone that you know blowing up their lives, and then you get asked about it by a third party, most of the time you don't want to go into all the details. I mean, if someone says to you, <clears throat> why is he doing what he's doing or what's going on in his life, instead of you giving all the details, you'll just simply say something like this, well, he's making bad choices right now. She's making bad choices right now. And that sort of becomes an answer. I know I give that answer myself, you know, because I don't want to go into it. It's just, well, he's making bad choices, she's making bad choices. But at the end of the day, for all of us who are objectively honest, that answer is inadequate. Because oftentimes we're talking about very smart people who at another time in his or her life would have never made those choices. And so consequently, it doesn't, it doesn't connect. Why would he be making those bad choices? And so I'm just saying the idea that someone's making bad choices being an answer within itself is not anywhere close to being adequate. See, I would argue that there's something even more fundamental than choices because we see people who make choices that are not even in their own best interests. I mean, for me, I live, I've been sharing this with you in this series. I live in a world of ministry leaders. And unfortunately, I've watched the failure and the falling of some very great leaders who have pastored some of America's greatest churches. And I knew them personally that at one time, they were very close to God. And they would blow up their marriages because of an affair. And yet, these guys would have written excellent books on marriage. They would have preached great sermon series on marriage. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't make sense that that person would make a bad choice because they're certainly not suffering from a lack of information. Now, I'm talking about ministry leaders, but I think this extrapolates out into just about every area of our lives. We see very smart people making choices that are inconsistent with even their own values and definitely with their own understanding of what's personally in their own best interest. So why do otherwise smart people go against their own value system and make bad choices? Here is, here is the truth that our culture does not like. In fact, our culture pushes back against this. There is something more foundational than choices. In fact, there are forces within us that will make choices for us and therefore make choices that are inconsistent with our values. And those forces are appetites. If you want to bring this down to a very um, day-to-day you know, day -day basis, you might think about appetites for unhealthy foods. I mean, I've been on a diet most of my adult life. I think I've lost 5,000 pounds, maybe 10,000 pounds by now. And there's always some new diet system coming along. But at the end of the day, all of the diets that are healthy are going to come down to taking in fewer calories, eating healthier foods, and exercising, correct? I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to that. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've watched a commercial on television for a pill that you can take that will make you lose weight. But in the fine print of the advertisement, it says that it's not to be used alone, it's to be used with a low-calorie diet and exercise. Well, I'm telling you, you can take a placebo and have a low-calorie diet and exercise and you'll lose weight. But our problem is with appetites, isn't it? 
And so consequently today, I want to talk about appetites, but there's actually something more fundamental than appetites. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're honest with yourself, you and I have developed appetites. We've developed a taste for things that we didn't like at first. I've met alcoholics who admitted that at first they hated the taste of whiskey. I mean, in simple terms, just to go back to the day-to-day thing, I, you know, I'm just, this confession is good for the soul. I had three cups of coffee before I left the house today to come to the church. If I'd been there longer, I'd have had four. <laughs> Do you know, I remember the first time I ever took a, a sip of coffee. I was six years old. Our church was having a late night service one night, and then I smelled coffee, and I thought, that smells good, and all the adults drink it like it's really awesome. So I thought, well, I'm going to just get myself a cup of coffee, and I took, took a taste of that, and this nasty stuff. So the truth be told, a lot of us have appetites that were developed and sometimes developed at first when we didn't like the taste of it or actually someone did something to harm us, but out of that has become an appetite. And and see, in our culture today, it's not okay to talk about this because consequently, the, the premise of today is if you have an appetite for something, then that's who you are. So consequently, we must all just accede to that. We must all accept it and just give in to it. But I'm saying... If we don't deal with our appetites, our choices are never going to make sense to us. I want to talk about appetites today. Let me give you a statement to chew on. You make your appetites, and your appetites will make you. That's true for Mark. That's true for you. It's, it's true for, for the whole world. You make your appetites, and your appetites will make you. Our series is called Return of the Thing. And what we've said in this series leading, and leading up to the series is that every day of our lives, Satan has temptations to ruin our day. Those are not good. But I also believe that Satan has a strategic calculated plan to blow up your life, to blow up your marriage, to blow up everything precious to you. And as we saw last week, Satan is not some sort of metaphorical, poetic um, characterization of evil in general. Satan is a real person. He's an angel. He's a rogue angel. Who's, a, who's opposed God from the very beginning. And he hates God. He hates God's creation. And I will just tell you something. Whether you're a God follower or you're a non-theist, he hates you equally. He hates all of God's creation. And consequently, he wants to blow up your life. And like I shared with you last week, he's got thousands of years of history of exploiting God's people. He's got a lot of trophies on his wall. But I am concerned. I'm your pastor if you're a new springer. And, and if you're our guest today, briefly, I guess if you'll let me, I'll be your pastor. I don't, want, I, don't, I don't want you to get to the end of your life and have blown up your life and lost opportunity because you didn't know what Satan was up to. Last week, I introduced you to a verse, and I hope that if you were here last week, this is becoming part and parcel of your thinking. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, the Bible says, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his intentions or devices or thinking. Now, listen to that one more time. So that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his intentions. Work it backward like a math problem. What that tells us is, if we are ignorant of Satan's schemes, we will be taken advantage of. Don't you hate being taken advantage of? When someone plays you for a sucker, when someone uses you, when someone tells you something, you know, you know what I hate? I hate it when people will lie and get someone to believe something and do something foolish and then laugh at them. And if, and if you're someone, you, you're a practical joker and you like doing that, that's wrong. And, and, and don't just laugh and say it's a joke. There's a verse in the Bible that condemns that. 
But what's really tragic is when Satan lies to us, plays us, and then laughs at us as our life burns. So I don't want that to happen to you. Last week, we talked about a guy named Lot, but this week, I want to talk to you about a guy that Satan got by getting him to develop an appetite, to develop a taste. Um, The guy's name is Samson, and if you want to find his story, you have to go back toward the front of the Bible. Uh, Not at the very front, but toward the front of the Bible, there's a book called Judges. Now, Judges is the in my personality, in my personal way of looking at it, Judges is the darkest book of the Bible. There are some horrible stories in Judges, some good ones. But there are stories in Judges that I won't even preach before a mixed audience because they're so horrific. Now, let me tell you real quickly what was going on in the book of Judges. The Israelites that God had brought into the promised land, um, when they first got to the promised land, they served God. But there was a generation that did not respect God And so throughout the book of Judges, there is a cycle that goes on over and over. In fact, if you ever read through the book of Judges, it'll be hard to understand it if you don't know about the cycle. And here's the cycle. The people of God were blessed in Israel. God blessed them financially. He gave them Canaan as a turnkey job. But when they had the blessings, then they disrespected God. They began to live wickedly and serve idols. And then God would allow them to suffer because some people group would afflict them, and then they would cry out to God for help, and then God would give them a judge. And it would be a man or a woman who was supernaturally empowered by God to lead the nation and to get deliverance. Um, When you look in the book of Judges, you'll find those uh, people like Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah and uh, Gideon. These are judges that God would raise up and deliver God's people, and then they would have a season of blessing. But in that season of blessing, they would forget God, and then they would start doing wrong, and God would have to let them be afflicted again. So this cycle goes on and on and on throughout the book of Judges. The only reason I tell you that is there is an epitaph in the book of Judges that tells us why things went like that. Hey, when I was a kid preacher, I got asked this question so many times. Hey, Mark, do you find America in the Bible? Most of the time they were asking that question in terms of end-time prophecy. But I used to say, sure, I find America in the Bible. It's in the book of Judges. Now, here's why the behavior was what it was in Judges. Listen to this. In those days, Israel had no king. Or you can read that, Israel had no standard. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Men. If there was ever anything to go on the grave marker of the United States of America in 21st century, it is that. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Hey, that's the mantra of postmodernism. I mean, how many times have you said something to someone who's doing something unhealthy, and, and you tell them, you know, this isn't going to end well, and that person will say, well, that might be right for you, but it's not right for me. Well, isn't that crazy that there's some sort of personalized, individualized, right? I mean, you think about this. We, we live in a world today, and in fact, people tell me this all the time. I don't, I don't like rules. Well, you do too. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Let's just say that someone decided who was in power to just get rid of all the traffic signs in Wichita, all the speed limit signs. Hey, I, personally, on a personal note, I would like that. Because like the old Sammy Hagar song said, for all of you old people, I can't drive 55. <laughs> I would love that. I mean, get out here on K96. I can drive as fast as I want to drive. I've been waiting all my life for that. I love that. 
And I promise you, one of the things that gets me so upset is when I'm on Kellogg trying to go home and somebody has timed the red lights so that every one of those lights I hit is red. I hate that. I've had to apologize to God for the person who timed the lights on Kellogg for the things I've said about him. And if you're here today, I want to apologize to you personally. I would just love it if it's like I could come up to a light and I could, it didn't matter, it was red or green, just go. Like some people I see driving do. Stop signs in my way. School zones. My cruise doesn't even work at 20 miles an hour. I mean, and after all, why should I slow down school zone? My kids are grown. See what I'm saying? If it's a world with no rules for me, I like it. But I can't live in a world with no rules for you. And that's the cognitive dissonance of America today. That's the craziness of our culture. If you want to know why the insanity is what it is, it is because we want to live in a world where everybody gets to do what is right for them, but of course it's a quagmire for everyone else. And so that's why Judges is such a, a bad time. Everybody did what was right in his sight, which meant they got to do what they wanted to do briefly, but it was a very violent, degraded, debauched place and time to live in. Well, of all these enemy groups that God allowed to oppress the people of, of Israel, the Philistines were probably the, the worst. Um, and the Philistines would be the enemy of God's people Israel for a long period of time, even into the kingdom age. The Philistines all lived in cities, five cities along the coastline. And they were very sophisticated when it came to military hardware. And so during this season, the Philistines had oppressed the people of God, but God was going to raise up a judge, a conqueror who was a very special person. The guy's name was Samson. Now, at first, Samson's mom and dad couldn't have any children, but one day the angel showed up and talked to Samson's mom and said, you're going to have a baby, but there's some special instructions that go with this baby. In, in theological terms, the angel was saying the baby's going to be a Nazarite, which meant this baby was living his life under a vow to God. And there were several things associated with this vow. One was he couldn't drink liquor, and the other one was that he couldn't have his hair cut. So he was supposed to wear his hair in dreads for all of his life. And I really love what Samson's dad said. You know, when Samson blew up his life, like a lot of us, he would have to say it wasn't my parents' fault because his parents raised him right. I love what, when, when, when the angel showed up and talked to Samson's mom and told her she was going to have a baby, she told her husband, and Samson's dad said, oh, I wish he would show up again so he could teach us more about how to raise our kid. And the angel did come back. And Samson grew up. And the way the Bible tells us is God's spirit began to work in him in such a way that he began to have marvelous physical power. You know, sometimes when we see images of Samson, he's this big hulking guy like he's all roided up. I don't think Samson looked any different from any ordinary person. It was just the power of God came on him, and he did extraordinary things. In fact, Scripture tells us one time he was attacked by a lion. He just grabbed the upper jaw and the lower jaw and tore it apart. Hey, that's significant. That is, that's, that's, I'd like to see that on, I don't know, maybe I don't want to see that on video. It's like watching one of those National Geographic channels. I just pass sometimes. Now, here is the thing. Work with me. This simple construct. Israel is in trouble. They've asked for help. They're being afflicted by the Philistines. God raises up a champion, Samson, who he's going to supernaturally empower. 
Samson's job is to defeat the Philistines. But the problem is Samson is in the process of developing a taste that will turn into an unhealthy appetite. I don't know of any genteel way of saying this, but just Samson is beginning to develop a taste for Philistine women. I mean, you know, when he goes down there and checks out the cities, you know, he's out there for reconnaissance, I guess. And he goes to the cities of the Philistines, he's saying, you know what, their women are hotter than our women. And there's, hey, listen, even to this day, there's sort of this deal with the bad girl, bad boy thing. And I, I, I've, I've seen a lot of good men and women date bad girls and bad boys, and it's like, well, you know, just exciting. Yeah, he's devastating too. But anyway, Samson started kind of having a thing for Philistine women. But here's the thing. He's a God follower, and he, does, he tries to do something that I've seen so many Christians try to do through the years. Samson's going to do a wrong thing a right way. He's going to marry. He, this one he sees, he decides he's going to marry her. New Spring, would you please listen to me? There is never a right way to do a wrong thing. There is never a right way to get out of God's will. It's just a charade. The idea that says somehow I can do something I know is wrong, but I'm going to find some kind of spiritual way to do it. That's a lie of Satan. But in any event, this guy Samson, who has no business marrying a Philistine woman, finds a woman that he's interested in. Now let's read it. One day when Samson was in Timnah, it's one of the cities of Philistines, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. Oh, he's seen her one time. She caught his eye. Samson said, it's love at first sight. Get her for me. Now, for the second week in a row, we noticed something. Because look at what his parents say. His parents objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you can marry? They asked, why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. Now, can we just talk heart to heart here for a second? Like I said to you last week, anytime any of us stops listening to the voices of wisdom in our lives... We're in deep trouble. Like I said last week, the monster may not have clamped down his jaw, but his teeth, teeth are already in our necks. But watch this. This is really huge. Notice that Samson does not have an answer for why. It's just get her for me. I want it. I'm going to do it anyway. Listen, guys, I wish I could tell you the heartbreaks through the 44 years of pastoring of talking to people and pleading with smart Christian men and women not to do something that I knew was going to blow up their lives. And when I would ask them, you know better than this, why would you do this? They don't have an answer. It's just, I'm going to do it anyway. Now, if I'm talking to anybody here today, that bravado is not going to carry you past the graveyard you're not, and I'm not, some special person that's not susceptible to the norms of life. Well, anyway, it turns out badly, and I don't want to go into it and read about it if you want to, but the Philistines had all these women on the payroll, and they were doing things like paying them or intimidating them, and this woman gives Samson away to his enemies, and turns out bad. They have this big wedding. They spend a lot of money on wedding party and all that kind of stuff, but then it goes nasty, and Samson's wife gets given away to the best man, and he gets upset. Thankfully, the one thing he does do is kill a bunch of Philistines, which he was designed to do, but not through that way. 
But the next time we see Samson, we see his appetite taking him deeper, and he's not even trying to do anything the right way. He's just in the house of a Philistine prostitute. You know what? Maybe it's a good time for us to ask a question. I've been asked this question many times as a pastor. People say, is it a sin to be tempted? Technically, no, but that's not the right question to ask. Because look at what the Bible says. Temptation comes from our own desires. Now, if I haven't cultivated a taste for something and a temptation comes, it's not a sin to be tempted. But if, on the other hand, I've cultivated an appetite and Satan exploits that appetite, because look at that one more time. Temptation comes from our own appetites, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Interesting language. If you're an angler, if you're a fisher. If you're a fisherman or a woman who loves to fish, you're going to love this because the language from James 1.14 is from fishing. Entice, that's the bait, that's the lure. There's the, there's the baiting, and then when the fish bites, there's the dragging away. And the Bible says that that's what happens to us. You know, whenever the fish sees the crankbait, there's an appetite that corresponds to the bait, and when the fish goes for the bait, the hook sets, and then the fisherman drags the fish away, and that's what happens when we sin. Well, as I said, it goes down from there because now he's, he's with a prostitute. You know, I find something interesting for us today. Samson is a strange contradiction. On one hand, the power of God is still on him, and he's still able to defeat the Philistines with miraculous power, and yet on the other hand, he has a destructive appetite. How conflicted must he have felt? Well, like some of us feel. I'm not being judgmental today. I'm trying to be helpful, but there are probably guys here today that you love the church and you love the songs and you sang the lyrics and they meant something to you and you'll even get something out of the sermon today and, and you love God, but tonight before you go to sleep, you'll use pornography. Don't you feel the conflict, the internal conflict? And I think Samson felt that. Because God was still there in his life. He was still defeating the enemy, but now he's got this destructive appetite. But for all of us who have developed any kind of unhealthy appetite, let me warn you in love about something. In every one of these situations, there will be a click point. Now, it won't be a perceptible click point. You won't get a warning sign. You may not even know when it's happened, but there will be a click point. And we see this click point in Samson's life somewhere in between the second and third situation. And here's what changes. Up until that click point, you will be in control of the appetite. But all of a sudden at that click point, that appetite will have control of you. And that is why wise people, smart people make decisions outside their own interests. And we say they're making bad choices we don't understand. It's because the appetite now has control of you one of the most well-known preachers of the 20th century. In fact, I guess outside of Billy Graham, he had the widest television ministry. But he fell horribly at the end of the 80s and the early of the 90s, not once but twice. The first time he wept out his confession. And then the second, thing, second time he got right back into it again. I don't know him, but he told a mutual friend. He said it went like this. He said it was like I could go down to the water and put my toes in the water, but I could always pull it out. He said, I put my toes in the water and I could pull them out. He said, I'll never forget the day I went down to the water and put my toes into the water and I couldn't get them out anymore. 
That's what happens when this click point happens. Now, up to now, Samson's just been, hey, he's had a taste for Philistine women. He tried to marry one, that blew up. Next thing you know, he's, he's just exchanging money and buying sex for a prostitute woman. But you know what? Like the old song says, he fooled around and fell in love. Because this third time, it wasn't, he was playing for keeps because he, he met this woman named Delilah, and his emotions got attached at that moment. Now, what he doesn't know is that Delilah is on the payroll of the Philistines, and they have offered her big money to find out the secret of Samson's strength because they understand this is a very ordinary guy who just kicks the heck out of us and we don't understand where he's getting his mojo. So they said to Delilah, we need you to find out the secret to his strength. But Delilah's good. She makes Samson think that she's really in love with him. So time goes along and the relationships deepen. And so one night, you know, they're, they're in the living room and the fireplace is going and music is soft in the background. They've been watching you know, Tom Hanks movies, and then just, (laughs) and Samson's got his head in her lap, and she's stroking his head, you know, and she says to him, baby, people that love each, it's in my Bible, okay, (laughs) baby, you know, people that love each other shouldn't have secrets, you got some kind of mojo working here, and you got to tell me, what is the secret of your strength? Now, Samson's not bright, but he wasn't born last night. Now, here's the deal. Any of you, and they don't answer, don't, please don't raise your hand. Any of you dating, you ever get to a difficult moment and you just want to get past that moment? And that's where Samson is. He just wants to get past this. So he tells her, he spins, he just like tells her something that's not true. Yeah, I tell you what. You get fresh green bowstring and you tie me all up. I don't know what it is about fresh green bowstring, but if you tie me up with that, I'll be weak as a baby. He wakes up the next morning, he's all tied up in green bowstring. That would bother me. (laughs) And Delilah says, Samson, the Philistines are here. He snaps them. Oh, baby, you lied to me. Uh Uh-huh. Time goes on. You know, Samson, that thing the other day, I'm trying to get past it, but it just bothers me. You know, I asked you to tell me the secret, and you told me a lie, and I just, I can't get over that lie. I keep thinking about it all the time. You know, I love you, baby, and I want us to, I want us to grow deeper. But that lie is bothering me. So you need to tell me, where's your strength come from? Samson said, well, I'll tell you what. You go down to Home Depot. No, he didn't, he didn't say that. He said, you go get new ropes that have never been used. Brand new ropes never used for anything. You tie me up, and that'll make me weak. Next morning he wakes up, he's all tied up with new ropes. That again would bother me. This is twice. But Samson's head over heels stupid in love. And then he tells her this. He says, well, and you notice the third time he's getting closer to the truth. He says, I'll tell you what, if you weave my dreads into your beam of your loom, It'll make me weak. See, he's gotten closer to hair, hasn't he? Not telling her the truth, but he's getting a little closer and closer to the edge. Next morning, he gets up. His dreads are all woven into the beam of the loom. She says, Samson, the Philistines are here. snaps them. Finally, Delilah says, I think we're going to have to end it. We're just going to have to end this. This is not working. I'm changing my Facebook profile. <laughs> not in a relationship. And she cried. And finally, long story short, Samson says, okay, I'll tell you the secret. If you shave my head, I'll be just as weak as anybody else. And 
She tells the, tells the Philistines, I believe he's told me the truth this time. He wakes up the next morning, his head's all shaved. And Samson thought, hey, I'm going to go out like I always have. See, here's the thing. When I was a kid in, in church, teachers always said the strength of Samson was in his hair, hogwash. Samson just flipped God off one too many times. He didn't know where that click point was. And he said, I'm going to go out like I used to, but he was as weak as, as water. And the Philistines captured him, tied him up, and to make a long story short, they jabbed hot pokers into his eyes, gouged his eyes out, took him down to the grinding house, unhooked the oxen that had been grinding, hooked Samson up and whipped him and made him go in a circle, treading out grain. So you see, God raised him up to defeat the enemy, but Samson had a taste for the enemy, and now the enemy is exploiting Samson. That's what Satan wants to do in your life and my life. God wants us to serve him and to advance his cause in the world. Satan is the enemy of God. But if we develop a taste for something that Satan's got out there, then the enemy will exploit the appetite that we've crafted. Well, just tell you the end of the story real fast. Samson doesn't have eyes anymore. He's made to be a beast of burden. But one night the Philistines decide to throw a party. They have a temple. and The top terrace of the temple is massive. 3,000 people are gathered in a wild, crazy, drunken party on top of this palace or this temple. And the head of the Philistines says, hey, get Samson out here and we'll make fun of him. And they bring him out. He's led by a little boy into this temple. And Samson says to the little boy after the people have made fun of him for a while, Samson says to the little boy, would you just take me over and let me lean on the two columns that hold up the temple? And when he grasped those columns, he prayed, said, oh God, would you just strengthen me one more time? And he grabbed the columns and they collapsed and killed 3,000 Philistines. The Bible says he killed more Philistines at the end of his life than he did in his whole life. But what a sad story. All because he developed a taste for something unhealthy. And this is true. And it works in our lives. Let me give you three principles and we'll close out this talk. Here's the first one. Appetites are the control room of your life. Whatever your appetites are, they're the control room of your life. We think it's the choices that we make electively in a neutral field, but no one makes choices in a neutral field. We make choices in the context of our appetites. So appetites are the control room of life. If you want to know how to change your life, you've got to get into that appetite setting. The second thing is you can develop healthy appetites or unhealthy appetites. Now, I'm going to tell you one more time. 21st century postmodern America says you can't even go here because consequently, whatever your appetites are, that's you. And so consequently, who are we to judge what's a good appetite or bad appetite? So consequently, you are what your appetites are. That might be postmodern America accepted, but it's catastrophic with God. The fact of the matter is you can develop healthy appetites, I remember having a conversation with Wendy the year before she and Jonathan came to New Spring, and I think this was like 2009, and we'd gone to Oklahoma City where Jonathan was on staff of a church there, and Wendy was telling me that there was a soup, old-fashioned vegetable, Campbell's old-fashioned vegetable soup that Jonathan just loved. It was his favorite food. She said, the problem is we can only find it in one store, and sometimes I have to drive a long ways to find that soup. Now, let me tell you the backstory for that soup. See, when I graduated from high school, I weighed 150 pounds. When I graduated from college four years later, I weighed 250. 
my life had gotten very sedentary. I worked my way through college and just got to the campus early in the morning, ate donuts, so I, I ballooned up in weight. So uh, around the time that we were expecting Jonathan, I went on Weight Watchers and lost like 80 pounds. So for 10 years, I mean, I, I, I meticulously guarded everything I ate. Now, when Jonathan was a baby, if something was on my plate, he knew automatically it was good and he wanted it. But I need to tell you the backstory for that Campbell's soup. You see, the truth of the matter is, I can remember standing at a Winn-Dixie in Texas looking for the lowest calorie Campbell's soup that was not broth. I didn't necessarily like it. It was just the lowest calorie soup. But Jonathan ate it off my plate and here he is in his mid-20s thinking it's the greatest soup in the world. The weird thing is, I, I got it because it was healthy. He developed an appetite for healthy things. During that time, you know, Stephen was born, not, and all that, those years that I was on a diet, I never had chocolate around. Stephen didn't like chocolate. I mean, here is a kid that he would get the reward of chocolate candy, and he would trade it to the other kids because he didn't like it. See, all I'm trying to tell you is you and I can develop healthy appetites or unhealthy appetites in areas like dating. I mean, I've had people tell me, you know, I just keep dating losers. Well, is it because, not that you want losers, but is it because you've developed an appetite for a certain kind of person? It's true in areas of friends. It's true in relationships. It's true when it comes to substances, and Lord knows. It's true when, it's, when it comes to thinking. Have you ever thought about your appetite for certain kinds of thoughts? You know what? There are people here that don't have a problem with anger. It's because you don't have an appetite for angry thoughts. There are people here who don't have an appetite for gossip because you don't want to think about someone else's misfortune. But there are people here who do have an appetite for gossip. And it's because they've created a taste in their lives for mental junk food. All of us need to think about this today because you can develop healthy appetites as well as you can develop unhealthy appetites. And if you have unhealthy appetites, the way to replace those is with developing an appetite for things that are good. Finally, this and I'll be through. There is a key. I just kind of talked about it briefly a second ago. But there is a key to developing good appetites. And I want to give you two statements that will help you. And here they are. You take responsibility and you shift control. Now, that's the very inverse of what we're told today. We're told that the key to living in America today is shift responsibility and take control. In other words, if there's anything wrong in your life, it's somebody else's fault or it's just the way you're wired. So you shift responsibility. I'm I'm not responsible for my appetites. This is just what I crave. It's who I am. But I want to take control. No wonder people are such a mental mess today. If you, if you want success in this area, you're going to have to take responsibility and say, you know, I'm responsible for my appetites. God has given me the spiritual and mental capability to reflect on my appetites and look at what needs to change. So I'm going to take responsibility. Maybe people did things to me at one time I couldn't control, and that contributed to an appetite. I don't know. All of us could say that to some, some point. But at the end of the day, it's, it's you up to bat now. And so I take responsibility and I shift control. 
Now, I'm, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will help you with this message because some of you, you could say, well, Mark, what about a 12-step program? If it helps, fantastic. Let God utilize that. You say, Mark, what about counseling? Would that help? Awesome. If that helps, then, then go for it. Just take responsibility. But let me just tell you this, and I'll close with this. Whatever you do to change an appetite, at the end of the day, there is one factor that is most important. Rehab will not work without this. 12-step will not work without this. Counseling will not work without this. If you're going to change an appetite, one thing has to happen. I hate to tell you this. I have dealt with an addiction in my life for 35 years. Now, when I tell you what that addiction is, you're going to laugh because you're going to think it's not very big, but that's always how somebody else's addictions look to us. And because of what I'm going to tell you, you're going to think, well, it's not, that really, it's not really that serious, but just hang with me. I have been addicted, and I'm not going to name the brand if I can help it. I've been addicted to Diet Cola. Now, when I talk about that, and I, dr I talk about drinking a lot, there are some people that would say, oh, well, I know lots of people that drink a lot. You don't know anybody who drank as much as I did. I mean, I would hear about people, that, I would start reading about people that drink way too much Diet Cola. I think I have that much by 7 o'clock. I mean, you know, I was upset when this company, when they went from 24-ounce bottles to 16-ounce bottles. That, I was just ready to protest. And it was not uncommon for me to have three or four bottles of, of Diet Cola for breakfast in the morning. Some of you have had lunch with me, and you know this is true. I would go to a restaurant, and I would say, I want a Diet Cola, and <laughs> no ice. And I might go through 12, 13, 14 of those. The only thing good that happened out of that, we had a server one time years ago who came to church because he said, I've never seen anybody drink that much Diet Cola in his life, and he accepted Christ. I think that's the only thing good that ever... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he passed away not long after that, so see, God can still use our failures. Um, I drank gallons every day. That's all I drank. In fact, one of the weirdest things that had happened is I'd bring it out on stage with me, didn't I? In fact, we had one of our television channels say, hey, <laughs> kind of laughingly, if Mark's going to bring out a Diet Cola, somebody's got to cut the label off of it before he came out. And Mike used to do that for me, take his pocket knife, cut the label off. But in 2010, I started having complex migraines, silent migraines. You don't get the headache, but it's, like, it's stroke-like, and it really is. In fact, that's what drove Kubiak out of coaching Broncos. But if any of you were here last August, you will remember that I had one during the service, and I walked off the stage at 9.30, unable to finish the message, 9.45. I thought I was feeling a little better, came back in the late service and still had to leave. I'd gotten so bad that Mary Alice was conspiring with my doctor to send me to a neurologist for extensive tests. It was actually beginning to threaten whether or not I was going to be able to do what God called me to do. And all this time, Mary Alice had said, Mark, would you please get off diet cola? Well, the problem is I didn't think I could. Oh, i got to tell you, I was known all over the country for this. I mean, when I would go to speak for a church or a conference, I would get to my hotel room. They would have the refrigerator filled with Diet Cola. I had missionaries who would say, you can come to my country. We have this brand of Diet Cola. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. That, that's how well I was known for this. I mean, 
And I was so bad, Mary Alice was pleading me. My complexion was gray. I had a pallor about me. And Mary Alice said, Mark, would you please give it up? And I remember we were getting ready to go to California, and I was, she had said, one more time, please give it up. And I said, well, when I get back from California, I guess I'll think about it. But all the time she had told me, well, I read where it's harmful, and I would say, oh, that's just junk science. That's Internet science. But as I sat there that morning while she was getting ready, we were going to leave for California, I happened to pull up an article by one of the most respected medical sources in the United States. And there was a long article about how that the chemicals in Diet Cola could be triggers for complex migraines. And I held up the Diet Cola <laughs> that was in my hand. And I told Mary Alice, I just drank my last one. And that was the first week of September last year. By the way, I'm happy to tell you, and I count every week and every month, it's been almost 11 months since I've had a complex migraine. And I was having them all the time. Now, let me get to what this is all about. You know the question I get asked as I travel the country by people who've known me for a long time, leaders? Wasn't it hard to give that up? I mean, that was clearly an addiction for you. I mean, how did you, I mean, that's the thing everybody wants to ask me. Wasn't it hard? The answer to that question is no. It wasn't hard at all. Because you see, I came face to face with the fact that what I had developed a crippling appetite for was threatening what I was put on the earth to do. And I determined quickly, I loved what God put me on the earth to do way more than I loved anything that I had an appetite for. I'm talking to some of you here today and you've developed an appetite that is threatening what you were put on the earth to do. In some of your cases, you were put on the earth to do great work for God. You were put on the earth to be someone's wife, someone's husband, someone's mother, someone's dad. You're put on the earth to make a difference, but right now an appetite is out there that's threatening your opportunity to be married, threatening your opportunity to raise your kids, threatening your opportunity to do what you were put here to do. And I'm just telling you, when you and I come to the place where we love what God put us here to do more than we love a crippling appetite, whatever thing you need to do to get over that appetite, I really believe you will do, and God will give you the strength to do. Um, I'm in overtime, but I need to close with something. Somebody could be here and you could say, Mark, um, what about me? I'm in a really dark place, and I've got some really dark appetites, and I just don't know if maybe they've taken me past the point of no return. Could I leave a verse with you? By the way, anybody here feel like it might be too late for you? Can we just all do something? I hate it when preachers do this. But let's do something for a moment. Would, would you just take a deep breath? And let it out. If you're breathing, there's hope. If you're breathing, it's not too late. I mean that. Listen to what God says. He talked to God's people in Deuteronomy who were in idolatry. Listen to this. There, in that land, you will worship gods made by people, gods made of wood and stone. I think that's a great description of appetites that are unhealthy. 
They can't see, they can't hear, they can't eat, they, they can't smell. But look at this. But even there, in that land, in that place, even there you can look for the Lord your God and you will find him. If you look for him with your whole being, it will be hard when all these things happen to you. But after that, you will come back to the Lord your God and obey him because the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or to destroy you. Anybody feel like you're in a foreign land today because appetites have taken you to a dark place? God is saying, even there, even there, sir, with that monitor open, even there in that unhealthy relationship, even there in that destructive behavior, if you will turn to God and seek him with your whole heart, you will find him. No dark appetite can be so wretched that God will not love you anyway if you will seek him with all your heart. I want to pray a prayer right now that calls out to God. And if there's someone here who says, Mark, I want to have a relationship with God, you realize that God has already made a way for you to do that. Jesus came into our world, died on a cross. His blood paid for your sins and my sins. Three days later, he arose in the grave. He's in heaven listening for you today. If you want God to forgive you and come into your life, you can reach out to him right now. Just join me in a prayer, please. I'll pray it slowly. You can decide if you want to say these things. Dear God, I do wrong things. And I have done many wrong things. But I believe you love me. I just heard that from the Bible. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose in the grave. Would you forgive me? And would you make me your child? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, North Auditorium, South Auditorium, if you just prayed that prayer, if you go to any of our info centers, just take your talk to us card and say, I pray with Mark, and they will give you a gift bag. It has a Bible, just like the one I preach from. It also has a DVD and a book I wrote. Thank you for being here. God bless. We'll see you next weekend.